And we'll turn now in God's Word to 2 Kings chapter 9. We'll read the whole of 2 Kings 9, all the way through to verse 37. Again, with a longer passage, I'll not be going through and reading it again as we go through it, so I'd really encourage you to have a copy uh, open in front of you as we go through this. And before we read from God's Word, we should ask for His help in understanding it. So let's pray. God, we love Your Word and we trust it. And We thank You for the things that it teaches us, whether they are things that make us comfortable or uncomfortable. We love that it, above all things, Your Word teaches us of You and Your glorious self. We pray that You'd help us to understand and we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. 2 Kings 9, the prophet Elisha summoned a man from the company of the prophets and said to him, tuck your cloak into your belt, take this flask of oil with you, and go to Ramoth Gilead. When you get there, look for Jehu, son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi. Go to him, get him away from his companions, and take him into an inner room. Then take the flask and pour the oil on his head and declare, this is what the Lord says. I anoint you king over Israel. Then open the door and run. Don't delay. So the young man, the prophet, went to Ramoth Gilead. When he arrived, he found the army officers sitting together. I have a message for you, commander, he said. For which of us? asked Jehu. For you, commander, he replied. Jehu got up and went into the house. Then the prophet poured the oil on Jehu's head and declared, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anoint you king over the Lord's people, Israel. You are to destroy the house of Ahab, your master, and I will avenge the blood of my my servants, the prophets, and the blood of all the Lord's servants shed by Jezebel. The whole house of Ahab will perish. I will cut off from Ahab every last male in Israel, slave or free. I will make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, and like the house of Baasha, son of Ahijah. As for Jezebel, dogs will devour her on the plot of ground at Jezreel, and no one will bury her. Then he opened the door and ran. When Jehu went out to his fellow officers, one of them asked him, Is everything all right? Why did this madman come to you? You know the man and the sort of things he says, Jehu replied. That's not true, they said. Tell us. Jehu said, Here is what he told me. This is what the Lord says, I anoint you king over Israel. They hurried and took their cloaks and spread them under him on the bare steps. Then they blew the trumpet and shouted, Jehu is king. So Jehu, son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi, conspired against Joram. Now Joram and all Israel had been defending Ramoth Gilead against Haziel, king of Aram. But King Joram had returned to Jezreel to recover from the wounds the Arameans had inflicted on him in the battle with Haziel, king of Aram. Jehu said, If this is the way you feel, don't let anyone slip out of the city to go and tell the news in Jezreel. Then he got into his chariot and rode to Jezreel, because Joram was resting there. And Ahaziah, king of Judah, had gone down to see him. When the lookout, standing on the tower in Jezreel, saw Jehu's troops approaching, he called out, I see some troops coming. Get a horseman, Joram ordered. Send him to meet them and ask, Do you come in peace? The horseman rode off to meet Jehu and said, This is what the king says. Do you come in peace? What do you have to do with peace? Jehu replied. 
fallen behind me. The lookout reported the messenger has reached them, but he isn't coming back. So the king sent out a second horseman. When he came to them, he said, this is what the king says. Do you come in peace? Jehu replied, what do you have to do with peace? Fallen behind me. The lookout reported he has reached them, but he isn't coming back either. The driving is like that of Jehu, son of Nimshi. He drives like a madman. Hitch up my chariot, Joram ordered. And when it was hitched, Joram, king of Israel, and Ahaziah, king of Judah, rode out each in his own chariot to meet Jehu. They met him at the plot of ground that had belonged to Naboth, the Jezreelite. When Joram saw Jehu, he asked, Have you come in peace, Jehu? How can there be peace, Jehu replied, as long as all the idolatry and witchcraft of your mother Jezebel abound? Joram turned about and fled, calling out to Ahaziah, Treachery, Ahaziah! Then Jehu drew his bow and shot Joram between the shoulders. The arrow pierced his heart, and he slumped down in his chariot. Jehu said to Bidkar, his chariot officer, Pick him up and throw him on the field that belonged to Naboth the Jezreelite. Remember how you and I were riding together in chariots behind Ahab, his father, when the Lord made this prophecy about him. Yesterday I saw the blood of Naboth and the blood of his sons, declares the Lord, and I will surely make you pay for it on this plot of ground, declares the Lord. Now then, pick him up and throw him on that plot in accordance with the word of the Lord. When Ahaziah, king of Judah, saw what had happened, he fled up the road to Beth Hagen. Jehu chased him, shouting, Kill him too! They wounded him in his chariot on the way up to Gur near Iblim, but he escaped to Megiddo and died there. His servants took him by chariot to Jerusalem and buried him with his fathers in his tomb in the city of David. In the eleventh year of Joram, son of Ahab, Ahaziah had become king of Judah. Then Jehu went to Jezreel. When Jezebel heard about it, she painted her eyes, arranged her hair, and looked out of a window. As Jehu entered the gate, she asked, Have you come in peace, Zimri, you murderer of your master? He looked up at the window and called out, Who is on my side? Who? Two or three eunuchs looked down at him. Throw her down, Jehu said. So they threw her down, and some of her blood spattered the wall and the horses as they trampled her underfoot. Jehu went in and ate and drank. Take care of that cursed woman, he said, and bury her, for she was a king's daughter. But when they went out to bury her, they found nothing except her skull, her feet, and her hands. They went back and told Jehu, who said, This is the word of the Lord, that he spoke through his servant Elijah the Tishbite. On the plot of ground at Jezreel, dogs will devour Jezebel's flesh. Jezebel's body will be like refuse on the ground in the plot at Jezreel, so that no one will be able to say, this is Jezebel. Now, there's an old saying. It says, revenge is a dish best served cold. And that's exactly what the Lord does here. If you were with us for the last Sunday in the previous year, on December 30th, you'll recall that we looked at the story or the account of Naboth. Now, Naboth was an Israelite who loved God, and Naboth owned a vineyard. And this vineyard was his by inheritance. It was his ancestral inheritance, so that when Naboth's family had come out of Egypt and gone into Canaan, the promised land, under the leadership of Moses and Joshua, all the promised land had been divided up by tribes and clans and families. And so this 
plot of ground on which Naboth's vineyard was found. This plot of ground was Naboth's ancestral inheritance. And it was right next to Ahab's palace in Jezreel, his summer palace. And Ahab wanted the vineyard that belonged to Naboth. And he wanted it because it was conveniently located. He wouldn't have to walk very far to get it. And so he offers to pay for it. He even offers to pay for it generously. But Naboth says, it wouldn't be right for me to give you my vineyard. And so Ahab sulks. He acts like a three-year-old. He pouts and he walks around moping because he couldn't have what he wants. And his wife Jezebel says, what's the problem? And he says, Naboth won't give me his vineyard. He won't even sell it to me. And she says, let me take care of it. So he agrees. Jezebel has Naboth killed, and for good measure, as we read in verse 26 here, she has all of his sons killed as well. So Ahab has the vineyard that he had coveted. But then, that wasn't the end of the story. The Lord came to Ahab through the prophet Elijah, and we read about that in 1 Kings 21, verses 17 to 19. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise. Go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone to take possession. And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, Have you killed and also taken possession? And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, In the place where dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, shall dogs lick your own blood. And so sometime later, Ahab was killed in battle. A random Syrian soldier had pulled his bow back, as the scripture says at random, and let go a, a random error and the, uh, arrow, and that random arrow of God's providence just so happened to find its way into the one slit in Ahab's armor where he was exposed, and he died bleeding out in his chariot and having his blood washed in the very place where Naboth had died. But the Lord had made another promise to Ahab. One which leads us to the point where we are this morning. He said, I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah, for the anger to which you have provoked me, and because you have made Israel to sin. Now Jeroboam and Baasha were two kings of Israel, and they had been kings of Israel who had had sons who had sat on the throne. And those dynasties of theirs had been wiped out one after another, so that Baasha killed all of Jeroboam's sons, and then later Zimri killed all of Baasha's sons, including Elah, who was the king. And so God had said to Ahab, your dynasty, your dynasty too, will end. And so that's where we come as we come here to the first 13 verses, is that Elijah has come and he's come to Ramoth Gilead, where Joram had been at war. Joram, the son of Ahab, had been at war. And here we find Elisha finishing Elijah's work. Elijah had been tasked with a number of things. The only one of those things left unfinished at this point is he had been told that he was to anoint Jehu, the son of Nimshi, to be king over Israel. And so Elisha has come to Ramoth Gilead to do just that. And then he picks, uh, he picks one of the young prophets. Maybe a prophet who can run faster than he can now that he's in his old age. And Jewish tradition tells us that this prophet was Jonah. Whether that's true or not isn't particularly 
relevant, but it is helpful for us to know that these events overlap with other events in the Scriptures. And so this young prophet receives his marching orders from Elisha. Go, anoint Jehu, and run. And so he goes. And he goes according to the command of Elisha. He finds Jehu in this house. He pulls Jehu into the side room. He anoints him king over Israel. He gives him his God-given mission. And then according to the word of Elisha, he runs. And this, of course, piques the curiosity of those who were with Jehu, these other generals of Israel's army. And so they ask him, what did this madman have to say to you? Jehu goes along with it. He says, ah, you know the kinds of things he says. We're not going to worry about that. And they say, no. Why do they say no? Because the guy's got oil dripping off of his head, right? They, they know that something is up. And so they say, well, what is going on? You tell us. And he said, he told me that I was the king of Israel. And they had two options at this point. They could have said, you're a traitor and put him to death on the spot. Or they could have done what, he, what they actually did, which was to say, Jehu is king. And they declare him to be king. They throw their coats on the ground. And they say that this man is now their king. This should remind us of when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the donkey. What did the people do? They said, glory to the son of David. And they threw their coats on the ground, declaring him to be king. And so these people declare that Jehu is to be their king. They, they immediately support and take part in Jehu's coup is a military coup where he seeks to overthrow the government and set up his own. Now you have to think about how miserable a failure Joram was as a king. That just a, a goofy guy that they called a madman comes in, dumps some oil on their buddy's head, and says he's going to be king, and just like that, they're willing to go and put their king to death. Joram was a miserable king, miserable because of his idolatry, and then we see that Jehu moves into action. Don't let anybody go from the city. Let's go quickly. And so they go quickly to go and find Joram. And then when they come within sight, there's a scout. And the scout says, I see some troops. And so Joram, King Joram, wants to know if these troops come in peace. But he doesn't mean peace in the sense that he suspects they're coming for him. He means, do you bring good news? Do you bring good news from the battle? What, have we won the battle? Have we lost the battle? What's, what's the word? Joram had been out in the battle, but he'd been wounded and he'd had to go back. So he's waiting for how has it been going. And so they send out a messenger. Well, the messenger doesn't come back. The messenger seems very eager to join in Jehu's army. And so then they send another messenger. And it's the same, it's the same response. There is no response. But then the scout says, I know who that is. That's Jehu, the son of Nimshi. And how does he know? Because he drives like a madman. Or he drives like a 16-year-old. I tell the kids in youth group, don't drive like an idiot. I don't want to do your funeral. Well, Jehu drives like an idiot. Right? He drives, and he's, he's going this way and that. And he says, I know who that is. Jehu is a, a man of energetic action. But what we see... Remember that Jehu's friends had called the prophet the madman, but the prophet is not the madman. We'll see in the next chapter that it's Jehu himself who is the madman. And so Joram and Ahaziah hitch up their own chariots. If the messengers aren't coming back, we're going to get the, in the information ourselves. And where do they meet Jehu? Well, they just so happen 
to meet Jehu on Naboth's land, out on the land of the man that Ahab had murdered. And so that sets the, the, the scene for when these, these two parties meet. Joram comes out and he says, is it peace? Have you come with good news? And then Jehu lets his intentions be known. How can there be peace? How can there be peace while your mother and all of her wicked Canaanite idolatries still happen in this land? You know, America has a policy that we keep most of the time. Americans don't negotiate with terrorists. Well, Jehu has a policy. Jehu does not negotiate with idolaters. And so, that's a good policy for the people of God to have. That was a good policy for the people of God to have in ancient Israel, and it's a good policy for the people of God to have now. We don't negotiate with idolaters inside of the church. We don't compromise with idolatry among the people of God. And there can be no peace. Uh, Donald Wiseman, that's a very convenient name for somebody who's a Bible scholar. Donald Wiseman says wisely, there can never be true peace in any relationship without religious agreement. Didn't we find that to be the case, those of you who've been around for a while, didn't we find that to be the case in our time in the Reformed Church? There could be no peace. There was never any peace. There was only anxiety. There was only tension. Why? Because there was idolatry and there was truth and they could not go together. And the same is true inside the local church as well. There cannot be allowance for idolatry and so then we see that, that Jehu seems to be a pretty good shot because he pulls back his bow while he's in his chariot on the run. He pulls it back to, his, to its full weight and he lets it go and the arrow flies right into Joram's back, pierces his heart. Joram bleeds out and dies in his chariot just like his father had done. You see, when an arrow of God's providence is launched, it will always find its mark. And so God's word here is vindicated, exactly as it had been said through Elijah, the Lord's prophet. And Jehu knows that this is according to God's word, because he announces that he knew the prophecy. He says to his chariot driver, toss him on Naboth's ground in accordance with the word of the Lord. And then we go back to 1 Kings 21 and we read this. The Lord had said through Elijah, Anyone belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dog shall eat. And we'll see that. And anyone of his who dies in the open country, the birds of the heavens shall eat. So Joram dies in the country. He's thrown on the ground of Naboth, and he's not buried. And as happens when you're thrown and not buried, the birds eat you. But Jehu's job is not finished. He goes on, and he has Ahaziah killed the king of Israel, and this will leave a, a, a big power vacuum among the kingdoms, both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, which will have significant consequences. But remember last week, if you were with us, remember last week, we saw the foolishness of coming into close relationship with those who are fools. And here Ahaziah learns that the hard way. The proverb again says, he who walks with the wise grows wise, but a companion of fools suffers harm. Ahaziah walked with Joram the idolatry, and he paid for it with his life. 
Now Jehu goes on. The job isn't quite finished yet. He's going to go on and he's going to kill Jezebel. And we read of that in verses 30 to 37. Jezebel knows what's coming. She knows her fate. She knows what's happened to her son. She's well aware that Jehu is coming to kill her. And so she does what may seem to us to be a very strange thing. She puts on her makeup. Some people will say makeup is wrong because Jezebel wore it. That is a very bad application of the passage. That's not at all what we're seeing here. You can wear makeup if you want to wear makeup without offending God or being Jezebel. But anyways, Jezebel, she puts on her makeup and she does her hair and she gets herself looking all pretty. And you wonder why? It's because she's not going to die ugly. She's going to die on her terms. And so Jehu comes in and she says, Hello, Zimri, murderer of your master. And so she taunts him. Why would that be a taunt? She knows good and well that Jehu's name is not Zimri. Well, it's, it's because Zimri was a worthless king. Zimri had, had killed off Elah, the son of Baasha, and all of Baasha's line. But then he'd only been king for seven days before Omri killed him. So she says, You're a worthless man. Just like Zimri was a worthless man. You'll, you will amount to nothing. And so she taunts him. She goes down swinging, so to speak. But really, she just mostly goes down because then Jehu says, well, who's with me and these, these few court officials? Uh, we are. We are. You have the army. We'd like to be on your side. And so he says, throw her down. So they throw her down, and then she falls. And you imagine that she's probably dead on arrival, falling out of the walls of a palace. But, but just to be sure, he has his horse, and the other horses trample him. Maybe some of you are afraid of spiders, right? You're afraid that any spider that exists in your house is going to eat you in the night. And so when you get a spider and you see it, you kill it. Then you think, I'm not sure that it's dead yet, and you kill it again. Right? That's kind of what Jehu is doing here with Jezebel. She's going to be extra super for sure dead. And so then, after that, he goes in and eats. This is a callous man, isn't it? Hey, he's just trampled some woman with his horse, and now he's going to go in and eat and drink. And then he gives a command. He says, well, go out and, go out and bury her. She was, after all, the king's daughter. It's a strange thing because he knew good and well what had been said, that nobody was going to bury Jezebel. She was going to be beaten by dogs. And so the people go out to bury her, and they come back. There's nothing left to bury. All there is is a skull and some hands and some feet. And he says, well, this too is according to the word of the Lord, which had been spoken, that nobody would be around who could say that this is Jezebel. And where does all this happen? But she's thrown out the window of the palace into Naboth's vineyard. Exactly as the word of the Lord had said. It's a disgusting story, isn't it? Blood, guts, and gore, and betrayals, and purges, and persons being eaten by animals. What in the world is a story like this doing in the scriptures which center on a man who is called Prince of Peace? Well, the message is a very simple one. The message is that God will not leave the guilty unpunished, and God will have his vengeance. And we see that a number of places in the Scripture, none more plainly than in Deuteronomy 32, verses 35 and 36. This is the voice of the Lord. It is mine to avenge. I will repay. In due time their foot will slip. Their day of disaster is near. 
and their doom rushes upon them, the Lord will vindicate his people. God will vindicate his people. And Paul picks up on this. Lest you think that this is just an Old Testament concept, Paul picks up on this in Romans 12, verse 19. He says, do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay. It's God's work to avenge. It's God's work to repay and to bring revenge. And isn't that what we see here in this passage? You go back to verses 7 and 8, and we read a few things. I will avenge the blood of my servants, the prophets. I will cut off from Ahab every male. I will make the house of Ahab like that of Jeroboam. I will, I will, I will. Jehu might have been the one who shot the arrow, but it was the Lord who worked the vengeance and stood behind and was in everything that happened. Now, we might, we might find this to be difficult. We get, we get turned around on issues like this a little bit because we know, and rightly so, we know that it belongs to us to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. And that's true. But we get, we get fixated on that. Even though it's true, we, we can remember that in the very next verse in Romans 12, Paul quotes from Proverbs 25, and he says, on the contrary, on the contrary to to working vengeance for yourself. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. So, so we, we know that it belongs to us to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. We know that we, we pray that they too might be forgiven of their sins and have all the vengeance which is due to them placed on Christ, that they together with us might be objects of God's mercy rather than objects of God's wrath. And we know that, but we can forget because we're so often fixated on what belongs to us, and we forget that the things that God does are different than the things that God tells us to do. There are certain prerogatives which God reserves for himself. Vengeance is one of those things which is wrong for us, but which is right God. And it is right for us to love our enemies. But it is also right to want God to be God. And to want God to bring justice. And even to avenge his people. And we see that we are even allowed to ask for that. In Psalm 83, we read this, O God, do not remain silent. Do not turn a deaf ear. Do not stand aloof, O God. See how your enemies growl, how your foes rear their heads. With cunning they conspire against your people. They plot against those you cherish. Come, they say, let us destroy them as a nation so that Israel's name is remembered no more. As fire consumes the forest or a flame sets the mountains ablaze, so pursue them with your tempest. And terrify them with your storm. Cover their faces with shame, Lord, so that they may seek your name. May they ever be ashamed and dismayed. May they perish in disgrace. Let them know that you, whose name is the Lord, that you alone are the Most High over all the earth. You know, if I was to pray that prayer without telling you that it was from Psalm 83, I suspect a number of you would be offended that we would ask for such a thing. But this is inspired, Holy Spirit-inspired word. Where we are permitted, even called at times, to pray for justice. 
God identifies himself in speaking to Moses. When Moses says, who are you? One of the part of the answers is, I am the God who does not leave the guilty unpunished. In Psalm 9, he says that he is the God who avenges blood and does not ignore the cries of the afflicted. Imagine that you were the wife of one of the prophets. Right? One of the company of the prophets that Elijah and Elisha taught. And these prophets that Jezebel so viciously wanted to kill. And your husband, the father of your children, ran from cave to cave and place to place and hid here and there, leaving you essentially to be a, a single mom of a number of children in the midst of a seven-year famine where things were difficult even for two, even for two parent households. And all the while, you are hoping and praying that Jezebel won't get her nasty clutches on your husband. And then one day, one of his friends, one of the other prophets, brings his dead, lifeless body to you. And your husband and the father of your children is dead. That's the story that happened all over the place in Jezebel's day. And would it have been wrong to want God to make it right? And would it have been wrong to want justice and to want, and to want God to avenge your husband, and you, and your children. Well, it wouldn't have been wrong at all. It is his to avenge and his to repay. What about in our own day? What about while our brothers and sisters from the early reign covenant church in China are in prison for Christ? Or what about when our brothers and sisters in Nigeria are being slain by the thousands? by persons who are dead set that there will be no Christians where they live, no Christ who has preached where they live. What about, as we heard a, a number of, of weeks ago, what about when there are girls in Cambodia who are sold into slavery to despicable, disgusting men? Isn't it right? Isn't it right to want God to make it right? Isn't it right to want God to do justice? Isn't it right to want God to be God? What is right? And even now, as we are here in this sanctuary, Naboth with thousands and hundreds of thousands and even millions of others are gathered together around the altar of God as we read in Revelation 6. And there John sees this in his vision. When he opened the fifth seal... I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? These are perfected persons in heaven who asked that question. Then each of them was given a white robe they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been killed. We, when we look around the world and we see persons thrown in prison for Christ, killed for Christ, 
even in other ways when we ourselves are mocked or slandered or our church is mocked or slandered for our trust in Christ and His Word. We desire justice and vengeance. Not that we desire to work it ourselves, but we desire for God to have justice done. And will we have it? Paul says we will in 2 Thessalonians, the first chapter. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. Where else might Paul have gotten that other than right here? That God indeed is a God who pays back those who harm his people. You know, it can be easy in our own day, just like I'm sure it was in Ahab's day and Jezebel's day, it can be easy to look around the world and feel like everything is falling apart. It can be easy to, to look around and see as though everything seems wrong, as if God is out of control. The book of Kings reminds us again and again and again that God is always in control. And that even as we look around and everything seems wrong, yet one day everything will be made right. When Jesus returns in the glorious blaze of fire with his holy angels, to avenge and vindicate every last one of his people, just as he vindicated Naboth in 2 Kings 9. Let's pray. God, it is easy for us in the comfort of a relatively free land to lose our edge and to fail to remember that the, the norm for Christians around the world in our own day, and certainly throughout history, is one of being at best a second-class citizen and at worst one who is hunted to be killed. But we know that we are to identify ourselves with those who belong to you that we are to identify ourselves with Naboth and his sons, with those in prison and those who've been put to death, to identify ourselves with those whose souls are around your altar even now crying out, How long, O Lord? And so we join our voices with theirs, praying for our enemies, praying for those who persecute us, desiring that those who persecute might come to a knowledge of the truth that that their sins against your people would be paid by Christ instead of by themselves. We, We pray for that. We pray that our enemies would be objects of your mercy rather than your wrath. And at the same time, we pray that you would have justice. That you would avenge the blood of your servants. We know that you are a God who does not leave the guilty unpunished. 
And we give you thanks that when we look around the world and see things which seem so senseless, that we have confidence that we belong to a God who knows the right and does the right, who makes all things right. And so we long for the return of your Son, the judge of all the earth, who does what is right. We pray for his coming, and we pray that you would keep us faithful, even faithful to love our enemies. We pray for those who persecute us in our own time and our own lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.